Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Thanks, Marilyn. Okay, I'm going to read the scripture. It is out of John 11, 30 to 37. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Good morning. Let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll get started. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessings, for your word, for your love. God, we ask that uh, you'd be present this morning, that there would be ever more of you and ever more of us that we'd be able to hear from your heart, that you'd seek us, Lord, that you'd minister to us, and you'd open us more to you today and every day for the rest of our lives until we meet you in glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever had a time in your life where you felt like Jesus didn't show up in your timing? Yeah, right. Chuckles. Ever had a time in your life where you were like, Lord, where are you right now? I need you. Maybe something happened that you wish didn't really happen. And you were left thinking about how do I deal with the aftermath of all this? If you have felt that way, you're not alone. Right, right. Join the club. We're going to read today some biblical examples about people who felt the same way, who found themselves in circumstances that they felt like were over their head, who found themselves in scenarios where they wished that Jesus had changed and then had to seek the Lord in that place. Let me start with the background to these verses. Here's a few names from our story you'll recognize. Mary, from this story, is the one who anointed Jesus with oil and washed his feet with her hair. Martha is her sister from Mary and Martha fame, right? Mary's in one part of the story sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's running about the kitchen getting things ready. Their brother Lazarus At this point, he's of very little notoriety. All he's done in the story is died, okay? (laughs) The tee-up that we meet these verses here, Lazarus gets sick, his sisters call for Jesus, Jesus delays. We find out that Jesus only delays two days. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days, so it's not like the two days made a difference. Lazarus is, of course, dead for four days, Martha goes out and greets Jesus as he he approaches, but she seems confused because she sees him as Lord. But in light of that, she wonders, why am I experiencing this loss, Jesus? My first point from the scriptures is that we have a God we can go to in times of hurt and loss. 
Jumping into verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. I know this is true in my life. Maybe it's true in yours, but sometimes I want to believe that Jesus won't allow us to experience loss. I want to believe that. Sometimes I can miss the purpose of the loss, though, that loss can be the catalyst that prompts us to seek him, kind of like Martha and Mary in the story. It's interesting, though, they start out, instead of going to Jesus right off the bat, by just sending a note, right? By just sending a telegram. And it wasn't until the situation got serious that Martha actually went out, Mary actually went out to go find Jesus. I don't know about you, but maybe that's not an uncommon practice in some of our lives. See, one of the dangers in living in an, area where, in an era where our theology is so well-defined, we have such great tools to look things up, is like sometimes I can type on my phone and Google answers in seconds. That'll make me feel like I have the truth and I have access to Jesus right there in my hand, but in reality, the truth that I just searched at the tips of my fingers in seconds will take me years and maybe even a lifetime to apply to myself. The end result being is that Christians, as Christians today, we can have great answers, get them quickly, but maybe not have the great lives that those answers would lead us to have. Kind of like how Martha and Mary first hailed for Jesus without going to see him, I think there's a temptation today that it's easier to passively hail theological truth than it is sometimes to go to meet Jesus personally. A.W. Tozer once warned the modern church that we have, quote, substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. We are full of religious notions, but our great weakness is that for our hearts, no one is there. There's a warning here to seek theological truths seriously, but also to seek the one who is the truth and the life. My second point is that we can seek God with mislaid expectations of him. Verse 32, it says, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, I can't help to, that notice but that Mary fell to her f- knees in front of Jesus, which is good, but she did it loaded with expectations. Sometimes we can bring extra stuff in the forms of expectations of what Jesus should do for us with our encounters to him. Maybe she came to Jesus expect, with expectations for him based on her own sense of righteousness, right? Like, Jesus, I was a prostitute, but now I'm doing things right. But Jesus, I'm giving it my best. Why can't you show up now for me? Jesus, I've been praying so diligently. Jesus, I don't deserve this pain. Jesus, I anointed your feet. Later on in the story, you'll say that I'll be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Can I phone in a favor? All those things are good things to do. But if we do them to leverage Christ's hand to do things for us, 
I believe we have a mislaid expectation on what that relationship is. What really Mary is saying to Jesus is, Lord, you could have given me what I want. You could keep my life intact in a way that doesn't rock my world. Have you ever prayed that way? Prayed for something that's, that's already gone? Under, wondered why God would seemingly take away something that would seem good to have? How come, Lord, if I've accepted you, how come there's still pain? A couple things that are apparent from this text and from life are that those who are hurting wait more on Jesus. But sometimes we can kneel in front of Jesus with more urgency for that pain to go away than we have urgency for him to actually come into our lives. Instead of looking at Jesus for the supernatural, we can ask Jesus to simply stop at an answer to our natural problems. And when he won't meet us there, we question him about it. Stephen Colbert aired an interview recently where he sat down with Anderson Cooper. I don't know if you know this, but both of those men uh, lost their father at age 10. And both of those men seem to have very different trajectories in terms of what that did to their faith in God. Stephen Colbert identifies as a Christian and talks about Jesus. And part of how that incident shaped his life was that his mother started to talk to him about loss in light of losing his father and his two brothers in a tragic plane accident. In fact, when Stephen Colbert would start to say, why me? Why did this happen to me in my life? His mom would actually correct him and say, well, well why not you? Like, if, if we know there's suffering inherent to life, and we know that in experiencing life, we're not allowed, like, there's no way to live in a bubble in this thing. Like, why, why would you expect that there wouldn't be some semblance of pain in that? But the good news, my third point, is that our God is moved by our struggles. Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had also come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and that he was greatly troubled. Scripture highlights the fact that he was deeply disturbed by her suffering. Now think about this. Okay, spoiler alert. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, all right? Why is Jesus troubled at all? Like, like really, I mean, he could have told her, hey, Mary, stop crying. I mean, if nothing else, look forward to heaven. Like, why are you sweating this? He didn't do that. He could have moved past her, brushed her pain aside, and preached the gospel. He didn't do that. He didn't tell her that Lazarus' temporal life really didn't matter and that all pain's temporary. It's going to be relieved one day. He didn't do that. He didn't even brush by her and go to the tomb and raise him right away so that he could relieve her pain. He didn't do that. He met her right where she was at. Instead of stepping in to simply restore everything and deal with the, quote, problem, he met her 
in the place where her heart was at. See, we live in an era of what some theologians call the already and the not yet, meaning that the doors of heaven has already been opened by Jesus coming down, but that glory is not yet fulfilled in how we live out life on earth. The already not yet holds that believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God, although the kingdom of God will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. We are already in the kingdom, but we have not yet seen it in glory. In the interim space between already accepting Jesus and going to heaven and getting there, there's a time where we're going to have emotions like grief or loss, pain and sadness, even suffering. People ask, though, in light of the already not yet, if we're born again, like how can believers still sin? Is because we're going there. It's a process called sanctification. The Apostle Paul said this about that process. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. A couple verses later he adds, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In this life where we live in the things that are seen, we're going to have reason to mourn, kind of like Mary and Martha did. And we're going to walk through the process of putting on a new man as part of this life. One image that I've seen as a paramedic that kind of illustrates this truth is childbirth. Adding to a family is a glorious, magical occasion. God and the angels in heaven are smiling that there's more people and maybe going to be a higher population in heaven one day. And there is something glorious going on in that moment, but mom is having a different experience at that time. Verse 34, Jesus goes on to say, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Our Redeemer, with the plan to turn it away, all pain and suffering came to earth and was so moved by some of the things that we live with that he wept. He wept. There's a couple different words for weeping in this passage. One is kind of like the ceremonial wailing where people tear their clothes, kind of cry out out loud. This word is more like an internal focus, deep grief. It also says in another section of the Bible that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and how that city had turned aside from God's glory. Jesus had a vivid and intense human sympathy. It shows that our God is a compassionate God and that he wept even in spite 
of the opportunity he had to overturn that miracle. He met us in heart before he provided for the physical. See, Jesus, his role in our life is not like that of a genie where he comes in to simply fix our problems. He, walking with him is more like walking with a loving shepherd who longs to share our hearts. Romans 10.10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. Ezekiel 36.26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Part of the process of being restored to Jesus is receiving that new heart. It's not pretend or not deal with the suffering that's happening. I mean, the Bible records fierce suffering. Israel enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. It doesn't record every lash that the Egyptian slavers laid into the backs of God's people. But that reality is there. Oftentimes, the Bible will record wars and conflicts, which it doesn't give a play-by-play of, because that's not the focus of the narrative, but those things are in there. While the Bible doesn't stretch out a description of those sufferings, it doesn't mean that they don't cause God sorrow. But yet... Often today, we think of God as a judging God. We have terms for the things that God said, like fire and brimstone promises, or like the fact that people believe God would, quote, send lightning bolts from heaven. Yet the Bible talks about Jesus like this. In Isaiah 53, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. I challenge you this morning, how, how often do we think of a loving, incarnate, even weeping God? Yet the, the consequences of our view of God is enormous. I feel like culture draws us into, uh, into theological conversations about God's character on a regular basis. Like, like, they're, like you could put God on trial in the public square. If God really loved you, why would he let you hurt? Why does God hate certain people? I can't follow a God who would dot, dot, dot. Yeah. It's hard to argue with an incarnate God who came to earth to weep and suffer over his people. But yet, like one of the church fathers said, he who denies the existence of God has some reason for wishing God did not exist. Yet even in Jesus' time, there was that subtle switch attacking the character of God. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? 
There's that switch in there from Jesus of all things good to giver of all I want. There's a switch in there from Jesus is showing perfect love to giving me the perfect love for whom I want and where I want to have it. If Jesus was really God, wouldn't he put his fingers in the dike of all human suffering? That if Lazarus had picked the right God, he would still be alive. And here are these Jews criticizing Jesus that if he really had cared, he would have done more to relieve Lazarus' sickness. But my fourth point is that it's actually a mistake to believe that salvation gets completed in this life. This belief can play out by believing that salvation should happen in this life, that perfection should happen in this life, plays out into false expectations of the gospel. It's a sense of, it can turn into a sense of deliverance through things, like God is going to give me the things that help keep me from suffering. That an increase in my faith will produce an increase in my health or in my wealth. Some people have called this movement the prosperity gospel. The biggest problem with the prosperity gospel isn't the fact that they say that God would like you to have money. Even though Paul, uh, it's that <laughs> it's in the lie. It's in the lie that the money is going to deliver you. The lie that health or wealth will serve as transcendent to your human experience. The implication that a bank account and some CrossFit classes will make up for the fall of creation. It's like telling a little boy that his matchbox car will supplant all his needs for loving, caring parents. The little girl that she can be totally fulfilled maybe with the right Barbie doll. And like a kid screaming in the store that he'd rather die than not get that video game. Except for, in this case, the kids are all grown up and, in some regards, actually living out that belief. Ravi Zacharias said it like this, Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. The cross and the resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity. Wherever you go, ask God for wisdom on how to get that gospel in, even in the toughest situations. I've noticed one way that we can even do this in the church. I grew up in Southern California, which was ground zero for some of the parts of what's been known called the Jesus movement. It's where a bunch of young adults and a bunch of hippies in the 60s and 70s came to know Jesus. They planted churches all over the area and even sent planters across the United States. I live in an area where you, it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a city that does not have a large church planted by someone out of this movement. But it's interesting now that some of my friends, some of my pastor friends hold down these pulpits, there's been a shift. They have baby boomers, baby boomer era people coming into their office, anxious as all get out about the rapture. Because in, in the 60s, they were preaching the rapture. Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to deliver us. Don't worry about the future. It's going to happen. And now, as these folks are starting to get a little bit older, 
and starting to be scared about the loss of a loved one, starting to be worried about a health problem that's creeping in, they're coming into my friend's office almost wondering, like, where is this rapture we were promised? And in the counseling sessions, as this comes out, getting down to the root of the issue, it has little to do with the theology. It was the fact that the rapture held some sense of promise in them not experiencing pain. In them not having to plan for the future. Maybe in them not having to deal with extended sickness or loss. It's interesting that even in churches that would line up with almost everything that CMA believes in, could have people attend for so long who had taken a theology that they believe Jesus is going to come and renew them to mean like, hey, I'm not going to have to go through deep suffering in this life. If we're not careful, we can even take the Bible and turn it in a way that makes us feel like we shouldn't have pain. I just point all this out to display for us the wiles of our own hearts, that in churches that could denounce the prosperity gospel, if we're not careful, we can twist doctrine to do a little bit of the same thing. And while it's true that many of the old saints gave up their resources for the advancement of the kingdom, they did so out of sacrifice, not out of lack of planning for the future. Leonard Ravenhill said about men in the church and the the things that affect us, he said, the true man of God is a little heartsick. He's grieved at the worldliness of the church, the toleration of sin in the church, and the prayerlessness of the church. He's disturbed that the corporate prayer of the church no longer pulls down the strongholds of the devil. Isn't it interesting that some people who attack God say that they're attacking him because he can't be a compassionate person in the world? That if you're to have that grief and that heartfelt longing in your heart, that that would mean God isn't doing what he says he would do. The promise that we look forward to comes in Revelation 21.4 when it tells us Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things will pass away. But sometimes I wish that verse said, he would wipe away every tear on earth. But that's not what it says. He will wipe away every tear when we go to see him. See, we're caught somewhere in between the John 11 story where Jesus is weeping and the Revelation 21 verse where he's going to wipe away every tear. And in this space, kind of like how the people of Israel had to witness the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't show up for every dead person to raise them from the dead. The Bible only records a couple. And in that space, like where the rest of us live, we need to meet Jesus whether he does for us a miracle or not. Whether he stands in to just meet our temporal needs or holds us out 
to seeking his perfect grace and glory in the future. When Lazarus was ultimately raised from the dead, it said many Jews came to believe Jesus, but not all of them. In fact, check this out, it records later that they devised a plot to go kill Lazarus. Poor Lazarus is like, all I did was die. Why are you going to kill me now? But his life was such a walking testimony that the Jews and the leaders of the age felt they had to not have that walking testimony going on around them. The bad news, of course, Lazarus eventually died. Everybody who got raised from the dead in the Bible eventually died. See, the temporal things that the Lord gives us, even if they come in a miraculous way, they're still temporal. But the spiritual things he gives us will last forever. The spaces where we ask Jesus to come and take away our pain, he might not. It might not go away. The caveat to all of our pain and our suffering may not be the miracle we look for, but instead, he may give us friends to hold on to, a community to work out things in, lovers to live life with, and some grace along the way. I think this text begs a question for us. Is there a dream that maybe... Sometimes in our life, we've held on to too tightly. Maybe the loss of somebody that we're, we struggle to deal with. An idealized life that we can't let go, or a, a longing that's maybe turned into an empty ache. A very public example of somebody who's lost something and has subsequently turned away from the Lord is Ted Turner. I've Googled this story a bunch of different places, so I can kind of give you the Reader's Digest version. But Ted Turner's father committed suicide, and his sister, as a young lady, got lupus and ultimately died. And Ted Turner actually has been quoted as saying this, I lost my faith when my sister got lupus. I lost my faith when God didn't give me what he want. Give me what I want is what it sounds like he was saying. In fact, he goes on to say, if that's the kind of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. See, sometimes the temptation is to judge God by what he gives or doesn't give us. And sometimes in those moments where God doesn't give us, that's where our faith in him, whether ultimate salvic faith or just practical faith to meet us where we are, hangs in the balance. A time that this was true in my life was when my grandmother died. I was a young man, so far had, uh, had no major family losses, no, no major deaths in the family. You know, so the phone call comes, grandma lives a couple states over. So, you know, the family all treks out there, we go to the funeral, and, and it like wasn't sinking in on the way out there. And to be honest, even walking through the funeral, watching grandfather go to the casket, say his goodbyes, like it didn't sink in. It wasn't until we were carrying the casket out that all of a sudden it hit me. Like the goneness of it all. 
like, like the f- ultimate finality of it all. The words she had spoken in my life, the influence she had made in my life, would forever be stopped. And it hit me. It, it wasn't just her loss. It was like there was some veil over my life that got pierced. Like some sense of protection that I had, some sense of not wanting to or having to feel loss, ultimately got torn that day. And I think for the first time in my life, I had true, deep grief that I struggled through how to grapple with that and what does God mean in the like in the life where we live with those experiences. C.S. Lewis said this about grief. No one told me that grief felt like fear. He lost his wife. He goes on to say, I was not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. Today, looking back, that loss of my grandmother may not even be the deepest grief in my life. And I'm sure in a room this size, there's people who carry far more loss and grief than that. The question from our text today, though, is how do we meet God in that grief? It's interesting to note that Martha kind of goes back and forth with her expectation of what she thinks Jesus is going to do with that grief. In verse 22, she says to him, But now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But Jesus says to her, her, your brother will rise. And Martha retorts, I know he'll rise on the last day. In one verse, she says, you're God, you can do all things. In the next verse, she's like, no, you can't do that. She does it again, verse 27. She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're Christ. You're the son of God who's coming into the world. Verse 39, Jesus says, we'll take away the stone on the tomb. And Martha says, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. It's been dead four days. Even people who walked with Jesus and had a living God right in front of their face struggled with what they were asking God to do and struggled with what to expect from him. Right here in Scripture, she's wrestling with those things. And the narrator of the story goes out of his way to point out that even those whom Jesus does miracles for struggle to grasp the work that is happening right in their midst. That begs us to consider, what's Jesus trying to do with us? Now, it's likely not going to be parting an ocean or even a bodily resurrection, all right? Like, that wasn't in the report, so I'm, I'm guessing that might not be on the agenda. But he may have something uncanny in store, nonetheless. A couple application points that we can look at. First, prayerfully search. What's God doing? Psalm 139, verse 23, 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Martha went to God with a request. 
She didn't know what she was asking for. The outcomes of searching yourself and praying and the outcome of seeking God as an experience rather than a theology may turn into more tears than theology classes. It may mean more repentance than references. And it may equate to more surrender of your heart to Jesus than you've ever surrendered before. If you're looking for God to give you a long, healthy life, he may do that. But if you're looking for God to give you a supernaturally empowered life, that's where he really gets excited. In Isaiah, he promises us by his wounds we're healed. And in Hebrews, he says, I will never lead you nor forsake you. As we close today, as we close today, I want to encourage you, we can hold all these things up to God. Our sense of loss, our sense of expectation, our sense of hope for the future, and most of all, thankfully, ourselves. That he's going to come meet us where we're at. He's going to call us forward into more and more of him and that there'll be restoration in that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning that you're present, that you love us, that you're working in our lives. God, I ask that your promises would take a hold of our hearts, that they would draw us forward through this day, that they would encourage us to have community, to love one another, to talk about our things and our life and our loves and our loss. And ultimately, there would be more of you in this place. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.